A financial plan requires planning. It's savings, RRSPs, investments, and planning for the unexpected. TD Term Life Insurance can help protect your family's financial future if you were to unexpectedly pass away. You can apply for TD Term Life Insurance online or over the phone by speaking to a licensed advisor. If you're under the age of 55, you could be approved for up to $500,000 of coverage without a medical exam. Conditions apply. TD Term Life Insurance is underwritten by TD Life Insurance Company. Visit tdinsurance.com slash termlife to learn more. While the country has been consumed with COVID-19, a deadly epidemic has continued unabated. Drug overdose deaths linked to the opioid crisis hit record levels in 2020, due in part to the pandemic, and 2021 is shaping up to be another tragic year. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. Alana Smith, who has covered the opioid crisis for the Calgary Herald, joins me to discuss the role the pandemic played in the spike in overdoses, what's being done now to limit the death toll, and what's behind the push to explore safe supply programs and decriminalization. Don't forget you can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So, Alana, it feels like forever that we've been dealing with what's better known as the opioid crisis in Canada, you know, years and years. But how long has it actually been going on? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's a bit hard to say. I would say in the late 2000s to about 2012, we really saw the oversubscription of painkillers. And that was things like oxycodone and hydromorphone. But eventually doctors just stopped prescribing those sort of things. And then we moved into or we saw the increase of fentanyl coming into the market. Mm-hmm. And that's really taken over. And that's what we've seen growing kind of exponentially in recent years is these synthetic opioids. How many years has it been since fentanyl started taking over? And how serious was that an issue on the streets in Canada? I mean, if I had to choose a year, I'd probably say maybe 2015, 2016 is when we really started to see it coming into what people were buying and we saw, you know, higher amounts of it and it was being pushed with other sort of drugs that people were buying like cocaine or heroin or whatever it may be. And then it wasn't until very recent years, maybe the past two or three years that we saw fentanyl analogs like car fentanyl come into the market. And I wouldn't say that that's a dominant drug by any means. Fentanyl really is. But the thing with car fentanyl is it's about 10,000 times more potent than fentanyl, which is already like a highly potent drug. So the dangers have just really increased over the past few years. Given the steps forward in identifying the issue, as you said, you know, pharmacists stopped prescribing things like OxyContin or OxyCodone, mm-hmm. and we've seen harm reduction measures brought in in various provinces, and we've seen increases in commitment to treatment beds. You'd think Canada would be getting a hold on the matter, but 2020 was a really grim year. As someone who covered this, why are things so bad last year? But I would go further. I think it it was a heartbreaking year. The amount of deaths that we saw was staggering. But you have to keep in mind that while we talk all the time about overdose deaths, there's also just overdoses in general where people end up in emergency rooms or they'll face, you know, injuries that last for a long, long time. It could be injuries to their brain, injuries to their body. So Mm -hmm. while we know that at least 4,000 people died from opioid-related overdoses in this past year, we know thousands and thousands of others also face adverse effects of drug use. And so why it was really bad this year was because of the COVID-19 pandemic. We know that it, you know, fractured supply chains. So the illicit drug market became, you know, a little bit more deadly. 
than it already was. It diminished the use of life-saving services. You know, physical distancing came in place and a bunch of other things. And then obviously people were started to use in isolation, which is really bad because then you can't have anybody call emergency services or administer naloxone and stuff like that. So it was an awful year. It was, it was the mm-hmm. worst year. And I think we just had new data come out from the government of Canada. And it showed that our deadliest quarter on record was between July and September last year. And that was 1,705 deaths. Wow. And to put that into perspective, that's a 120% increase from the same quarter in 2019. Yeah. So it's really, really bad. Yeah. So we were starting to see positive trends before 2020, right? Right. Or had it, had it still been growing steadily in the years leading up to the pandemic? I wouldn't say it was growing steady. Overdose numbers were trending downwards prior to the onset of COVID-19, but it's almost instant. As soon as we saw varied lockdowns come into effect across the country, we saw a massive spike in overdose fatalities. Between April and June alone, Canada recorded 1,646 opioid overdose deaths. Hmm. And in Alberta, for example, the province recorded 623 opioid-related deaths in 2019. So that was significantly lower than what we've seen last year which is, you know, past a thousand. And it was the lowest yearly total in 2019 that we had seen since 2016, which is where there was 553 deaths. So you really did see these measures that were put into place, like naloxone distribution, supervised consumption sites, clean supply, like needles and stuff like that. You saw this making a real impact and obviously investments into addictions and recovery and treatment services. But then it all just kind of went away. You mentioned earlier the idea that the drug supply was interrupted due to the fact that the world basically shut down last spring. Right. For people who don't understand how drug supply works, was it a case that instead of getting heroin or the other drugs that people were expecting when they were purchasing their supply on the street, that users were instead getting things like fentanyl or, you know, other synthetic opioids? That's a bit of a tough question, but yeah, so it fractured some certain supply chains. So say there was a lot of fentanyl, for example, coming from China. Mm-hmm. We were seeing less of that coming across the borders, but um, that's not to say that we weren't seeing any at all. It would just be less. And so people started making it on their own, right? You hear these stories from the police of people making it in their bathtubs or in these drug houses and stuff like that. And they use whatever they can to cut it, right? And the, the farther you can cut the supply, the more money you can make when you sell it. And so you're cutting with stuff that is frankly just just very, very, very dangerous. And so that's when you're seeing these traces of fentanyl and even car fentanyl come into the drug supply that you may not have seen as much of before. And how much is that factoring into overdose deaths? Like what percentage of deaths are tied to supply issues or to some of these more deadly drugs like fentanyl and car fentanyl? Right. Well, in Canada, last year anyway, until September... We have data that shows 82% of accidental opioid toxicity deaths involved fentanyl, and the majority of which was non-pharmaceutical. So that's incredibly high, and it's even higher when you look at certain kind of facets of the overdose crisis as well. Is there any city in Canada or province that kind of was hit harder, or was it spread out across the country? You saw similar trends from east to west. I would say you saw similar trends across the country, but the three hardest hit provinces would probably be Ontario, Alberta, and BC. BC always seems to be the subject of conversations like this because they're doing, from what people see, a lot of different things than other provinces, right? They have some safe supply pilots in place. They have a huge crisis, obviously, in the downtown east side. Their deaths have skyrocketed really since the beginning. But in Alberta as well, we're seeing the same thing. In Ontario, we're seeing the same thing. 
in much smaller jurisdictions where you hadn't really seen it before, you're seeing the same thing. So mm-hmm. it's just been awful. Yeah, it's 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 really affected every single corner of Canada, rural, urban. It doesn't matter where you are. Every time we get a numbers update, the discussion comes to, you know, while we're all dealing with this uh, COVID-19 pandemic, there's another deadly epidemic going on in this country. We need to do more to tackle it and any gains we made were kind of washed away in 2020. But what are people looking at in terms of solving this problem or stemming the tide of these deaths or trying to make 2021 a less deadly year than last year? Right. There's a whole list, I think, of measures that people are looking to to address the overdose and more specifically the drug toxicity crisis. Mm-hmm. Things like harm reduction services, which could include supervised consumption sites, naloxone distribution, clean supply programs. There's also obviously the entire continuum of care, and that includes detox, treatment, and recovery, where we've seen quite significant investments, especially here in Alberta. But more recently, what we've heard from addictions experts is the push for things like decriminalization and safe supply programs, which is where people are prescribed regulated medications. Mm -hmm. But I think really the base of it is there's no no single answer. And I think right now, the biggest thing that folks are trying to get people to understand is that the crisis itself isn't so much the overdose crisis. It's really the drug toxicity crisis. It's why people are dying. And that's because of just how deadly and how potent the drugs are right now. There's been a lot of controversy, especially in Alberta. You're in Calgary. I'm in Edmonton. We've seen the discussion around safe consumption sites. And they they sometimes feel like the most visible piece of the discussion. Right. And they do face a lot of controversy depending on where you are. But where have we seen opposition to these facilities? And why are we seeing opposition to these facilities? I think you're right in the sense that they are the most visible. I don't think there's anybody in Calgary who hasn't seen photos of that yellow needle box plastered all over the front page of the newspaper or wherever else it may be. People know it. It's almost a visceral reaction when you see the outside of these sites because you know what's going on inside them, right? And that goes back to stigma and stuff like that. But I think controversy has taken place across the country because there's this idea, which people would argue is false, that people are encouraging drug use when there's supervised consumption services available because you go in and you use your drugs and then you leave, right? But we've seen opposition across the country. For example, the Saskatchewan party in Saskatchewan refused to fund the province's first site, but that ended up opening anyways after they crowdfunded enough money to hire a paramedic. And that was in Saskatoon last October. In Manitoba, their premier said opening an overdose prevention facility in Winnipeg is a lower priority. And Alberta, of course, is one of the most, I would say, tense places for supervised consumption sites. They closed the Lethbridge site, for example, which was the busiest site in North America. And they discontinued the funding for that site because of allegations of financial misconduct. But those, of course, were proven unfounded by Lethbridge police. Yet there's still no plans in place to put another one up there, right? Mm -hmm. And Lethbridge itself has the highest rate of overdose fatalities in Alberta at almost 53 per 100,000 people. So it's it's kind of a nightmare what's happening there. It's the perfect storm, but a really awful storm. Yeah. And there's not really much being done. But on top of that, which is just to add on to it, is that the UCP conducted this review here that was looking into the socioeconomic impact of supervised consumption sites in the province. And that report has since been dismissed by academics and scientists from across the country, but they stand behind it. Funding is in place right now for these services to continue, but we just don't know how long that will last and and what will come of this report. So it's still very tense and very unknown what's going to happen, especially here in Alberta. 
there's no plans for a, a new site to open up in Lethbridge. What are they doing there? Like if the overdose problem is as bad as it is and the site was as busy as it was, what's the solution in the meantime? Right. So the government did put a mobile overdose prevention van, which actually doesn't move, even though it's called mobile. Um, and that can serve a fraction of what they used to be able to serve at the Arches facility. Mm-hmm. So that's up and running. That's a few blocks from where the former site was. And then there's also been people kind of on the front lines of the crisis that started their own unsanctioned overdose prevention site. And they were just putting that in the downtown park and saying, you know, people can come warm up here and and we're harm reduction experts. So we can help you out with whatever you need kind of thing. It could be a hot meal or a blanket, stuff like that. But there was a lot of pushback there. And eventually they had to close down the service that they were using because of, I would say, bullying and harassment from locals, but also police efforts and government efforts. So There's a lot of, I guess, on-the-ground grassroots efforts happening there, but nothing actually set in stone. What about treatment? You hear lots of discussion about the four pillars of tackling this problem, and and treatment's one of those big pieces. But treatment beds cost a lot of money. There's limited supply of them. Mm -hmm. Are we starting to see more discussion around investment in treatment services across Canada and different ways of treating people who are addicted to opioids? Yeah, definitely. In Alberta, there really has been record investments in treatment and recovery services in the province, which from what I hear from people across the province, that's really, really helpful. But the problem is people are still waiting to get into these sort of facilities. And we're not often given numbers of how many people have been able to utilize them and what that uh, demand is looking like and stuff like that. But I think one of the ones that's really interesting here in Alberta is injectable opioid agonist therapy. And so that's given in Calgary and Edmonton. And it's a form of treatment for people with severe opioid use disorder who failed all other treatments, such as methadone or suboxone. Mm-hmm. People have described it as like a last resort for these patients. But in Alberta, again, we've seen funding cut by the UCP for this program to be continued. Then patients launched a lawsuit against the government, alleging they breached their protected rights under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And eventually the, the UCP walked back that decision. The problem, people say, is that while they've committed funding for two more years, that's only for existing patients. So no new clients can be accepted and people have really seen life-changing effects of of using a program like this. How does that work? What does that program look like for users? It's a bit of a complicated one in the sense that you have to go to the site multiple times a day to receive your form of treatment, right? You also have tons of wraparound supports at the same time. There's primary care. Uh, People can help you with, like, if you got a cut, you can get your cut fixed up. If you need to get tested for sexually transmitted diseases, you can do that there. So it's really kind of everything in one place. But the focus of it is that treatment, right? Mm -hmm. And that's really helped people because it gives them the opportunity to get off street drugs, which, of course, are very, very harmful and very dangerous. That's part of treatment and and. For those who who are ready to kind of take that step into treatment and stop using, that's one facet of it. But obviously there are people out there who are battling an addiction and are still using these drugs. And while safe consumption sites are very visible and are kind of prominent in bigger centers, there is a concern though that in smaller centers are underserved. Mm-hmm. What ways are people trying to offer similar services to users in smaller remote centers or even people who are isolating at home and you know they don't want to go out and risk contracting COVID by using a safe consumption site? How are services being targeted to that group? So that's where we've seen the rise in, I guess you'd call them virtual services or telephone or app-based services. 
And so there's a really successful one in BC. It's called the Lifeguard app. And uh, data suggests that they've reversed 14 overdoses since they launched. They've had more than 30,000 sessions, 60 emergency responder calls. And how this app works is that you kind of sign on and then you click a timer. And if you don't respond to the timer when it ends, it can trigger a call to emergency services, which could then come to wherever you are and administer naloxone or emergency services, whatever it may be. And we have similar, you know, apps and, and services like this across the country. We have the National Overdose Response Service, or NORS. And then we also have the Drug Overdose Response Service, which is DOORS, which is in Alberta, which is pretty much uh, a very similar thing. These solutions are really helpful, especially in rural settings, right? Because like we talked about, urban centers are where we're seeing these supervised consumption sites. But data proves that they're most effective within a 500 meter radius. Of course, that leaves a lot of people in the dark that they can't really access this service or won't necessarily benefit from it. So these phone apps or these you know, telephone services are really helpful in the sense that they can connect with people exactly where they are, in their homes, in their bedrooms, wherever it may be. And the difference is, is some are peer supporters that are calling you know, peers on the line. Others are just an app where you can click on and off. I think they're very promising. They're helpful, but experts have noted that they don't necessarily address the real problem at play, which is, of course, drug toxicity. Now, when you talk about drug toxicity, we start seeing kind of discussion of, of ideas that could be viewed in some circles as quite radical. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been a lot of talk about safe supply programs and even decriminalization. Who's the driving force behind some of these ideas and what's the reasoning for this push? Well, I think a lot of experts would push back on the idea that safe supply or decriminalization is radical. I think to people that may not be involved in in the issue at hand, it can appear very radical. But I think people on the front line see it as almost an obvious way forward, right? They would address both the drug toxicity crisis and then lasting stigma and obviously criminalization of folks who are using drugs, which can prevent them from accessing life-saving services and actually further their addiction. Evidence itself is also overwhelming that criminalization has not been successful at curbing drug use and overdoses. So people are really pushing for the merge of both safe supply and decriminalization kind of at the same time. Mm -hmm. There's an Alberta-based physician, actually, Dr. Monty Gosh, and he said to me recently, there's no other medical disease that we arrest and incarcerate, which is very true for this one. And BC is currently seeking an exemption from the federal government, uh, which would be the first jurisdiction to do so if they're successful. So it's really coming up. It's coming up from doctors. It's coming up from harm reduction experts, addictions physicians, people who are really on the front lines. I wouldn't say it's necessarily coming from the government. I think that's still pretty novel. And there may be jurisdictions exploring it, but it hasn't necessarily made any waves yet. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to safe supply, that really directly addresses, as people would say, the issue of drug toxicity. Now, there's definitely some skepticism of this type of program, which is why people are undergoing a lot of pilot projects across the country, which would study its effectiveness. But it's clear to see that this is really showing promise because just like alcohol, with safe supply, you know exactly what you're getting, what's inside of it, how potent it is, and what it affects will be, which is what you don't know with the illicit market. One thing that's been surprising in all the talk about decriminalization is even the body that represents chiefs of police across the country have gotten on board. Why is it that they're even jumping in on this and saying, hey, maybe it's something we should explore in Canada? I think they came to the same realization as other people that what's currently in place in Canada right now just isn't working. 
And uh, when they released their press release, it was quite a while ago now. I think it was the end of December, maybe early in 2020. But they said arresting individuals for simple possession of illicit drugs has proven to be ineffective. It doesn't save lives. Mm -hmm. So they kind of recognize that, you know, this issue isn't going anywhere. So you might as well make some changes to see what can be done to really curb, you know, overdose deaths and all the other adverse effects that come with drug use. Yeah. Now, ultimately, when we're talking about a drug crisis, we're talking about people who have succumbed to addiction. We're talking about lives lost. We're talking about lives altered by pretty severe injuries due to overdoses. Mm -hmm. These people leave behind loved ones or they leave loved ones having to care for them. What are the family's concerns about how we address addiction and the opioid crisis in Canada? Well, I've spoken with many families who've lost loved ones, and I think that the stories vary greatly, right? There are some folks who are using it recreationally. There are some who are very deep into their addiction, mm -hmm. but there's definitely some overlapping features. And I'd say for many, it, you know, it goes back to trauma. There's mental health issues. There's issues of homelessness. There's lack of support from healthcare providers or limited availability of services. So it's really kind of multifaceted, and I don't want to simplify it. But I think what people say is really lacking when it comes to addressing this crisis is just compassion. I think when someone dies from a drug-related overdose, the reaction, generally speaking, isn't the same if someone dies from, say, cancer or COVID-19. There's a very dismissive attitude towards this that people chose it, which is not true. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's also heavy stigmatization. So a lot of people just don't get the care that they deserve. And it's not really treated like an addiction, even though that's exactly what it is. So it's spring 2021. We're still wrestling with COVID-19, various lockdown measures in provinces across the country. Are we still seeing some of the issues related to drug availability and drug toxicity that we saw early on in the pandemic? Or is there a sense that we could be getting to a better place and we may stem some of the tide that we saw last year? I think, unfortunately, there's nothing to suggest that we're not going to keep seeing record high overdose deaths and adverse events happening across Canada. And I think a lot of that goes back to that people aren't necessarily tackling this as it is an emergency event, right? Mm -hmm. And I was talking to Donald McPherson the other day. He's the executive director of the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition. And he says that no government, municipal, provincial, federal, has responded in an emergency fashion like they have with the pandemic, though they absolutely have to. Clearly what's happening right now and going with the status quo isn't making any sort of lasting changes. So I know we talked about earlier the idea of some of these quote unquote radical solutions. But right now, I think what a lot of experts are saying is that we need that radical. We need stuff that goes against the status quo, because if we don't, thousands and thousands and thousands more Canadians are going to die. I know that the pandemic has overshadowed a lot of this, but your reporting has definitely shone a light on a very serious issue that Canadians are still grappling with. Alana, thanks for your time. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. 10.3 is produced by Sean Knox. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Alana Smith. More from her at calgaryherald.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.